podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it up. Out of sight, you know when that shark bites, his teeth So welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin, as always. Hope everybody's well. Some good news recently. I'm looking out of my window and it's uh, it almost looks like spring. It's a nice sunny day. Uh, we've had some positive vibes coming from the coming from the government. So who knows? Maybe it won't be that long before we get some crowds. Back to boxing, which would be absolutely tremendous. Don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but at the same time, it does look like there is some light at the at the end of that tunnel. Thanks for the feedback on the YouTube channel uh, and on last week's podcast with Frank Smith. Do get onto the channel, the YouTube channel, and have a have a look at the stuff that's going up on there. We're bringing out these kind of like little bite sized news current affairs podcast that we're doing me and Matt as well we're enjoying doing those uh it imposes a bit more discipline on us uh to get to the point a bit more quickly than uh <laughs> than we can do generally when it comes to the longer podcast format but you know uh, a bit of discipline never hurt anybody uh so on to today's episode and today we are taking another deep dive uh into a big fight and the one we're homing in on it's one that British boxing fans will be very familiar with. Uh, Christmas 1997, New York. Naz hit the Big Apple. Prince Nassim Hamed against Kevin Kelly. It was a very dramatic spectacle on the night, but there was all sorts of things going on around it, as there always were when Nassim was involved in anything, because drama was never far away, whether it was in the ring or whether it was out of the ring. So this will be a, a deep dive centering on that fight, but it'll be a, a kind of a deep dive into his career too, because we couldn't really leave it there. We would have to kind of follow it through as we tended to with people's careers, just to see what happened off the back of that one particular occasion. Uh, and the man for this job was, was obvious. Uh, one name was screaming at us uh, when we decided this would be the fight we would do. It's uh uh, it's our, our esteemed colleague and great pal from from uh, our Sky Sports boxing team, Adam Smith, because Adam was on the NAS train right from the start. He was on the NAS train. He was he was the driver. He was a conductor. He checked your tickets. Uh, he was there all the way through. Uh, there was a stage where, I mean, he, Sky probably should have got him a flat in Sheffield. He was up there that much at the St. Thomas gym with with NAS and, and Ryan Rhodes and Johnny Nelson and, and Junior Witter, uh, and Brendan, of course, and, and other fighters coming through so Adam thanks for doing this um when Matt suggested it on the weekend we were kicking around fights we might do when when I think he came out with four or five or when he mentioned this one you jumped on it straight away because I mean he was he was a big part of your career wasn't he he was indeed I mean he was a, a fabulous um sort of early part of of Sky Sports um Naz was box office. Naz was entertainment. Naz was different. And, uh, you know, I had the privilege of spending, as you said, a great deal of time with him in Sheffield. Um, it was 
it was a fun time. It was a time where there was a real bounce to to that area, you know, on Winkerbank Hill with with Johnny and Clifton Mitchell, Ryan Rhodes, Junior Witter, you know, so many sort of coming through. Harold Graham had, had led the way, and and, and Brendan Ingle, this uh, this master trainer, but more a sort of master man in in bringing sort of you know young kids off the streets and putting them in a factory where you know no one was was boss. Everybody just got on with it. Everybody was was made to do, you know, various city routines. They all, you know, body sparred. They all learned the Ingle way. And, yeah, Nassim came as, an, as, a, as a kid himself, you know, seven or eight into the gym, and, and so did Ryan Rhodes. Kelbrook followed. It was, um, it was a sort of well-trodden path. But Nas had something very different. And, you know, I think we knew when he was an amateur and when he was sort of outspoken on the circuit and told us what he was going to do before he turned professional, that there was going to be something a bit different. We'd had Chris Eubank, obviously, you know, who'd, who'd lit up the, the the boxing world with his eccentricity, with his showmanship. But here was somebody who really believed in himself. And it was clear to see that he had the skill set as well as the the mouth, the cheek and the uh, the, the, the general entertainment factor to, to go a long way. And and uh, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful ride. It wasn't an easy ride, Andy. At times, he was uh, the worst timekeeper in the world, and um, you know the amount of, of hours I lost waiting around for him uh, was phenomenal. But when we got him, you know, the interviews I must have done 150, 200 interviews with Naz, and he was a phenomenal interviewee. He was just. He just had this charisma. He had this intelligence. He had the uh, the smarts, and and he was fabulous. And and I, I really loved working with him from start to finish, as you said. And and you know, yes, when when we talked about what fight would be good to sort of deep get right down into, was um, there was only one with Naz, and he'd just come off that incredible display against Jose Badillo, which I think was probably the best we ever saw Naz in Sheffield. He was fantastic that night. He was. Uh, he was mixing up the Ali shuffle with beautiful boxing. Timing was great. Power was good. Um, and it was, it was a good class opponent as well, Badio. And, and then at the end, when Kevin Kelly sat on the ring apron and said, you know, you know, I want you in New York. And there was the smoking the boots and all of that. And it started. It was just, it was an amazing time. And, you know, December 1997 will be a month forever etched in my memory for some some incredible sort of times. The build-up, the, the night itself, the whole package was was one of the greatest I think we've ever had on Sky. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pleased you gave me the call. Well, we'll get to we'll get to the the night itself and the and the kind of immediate period before that in the in the, in a little while, but. Just from my own point of view, I was I was I was a viewer. Um, I loved watching him, and I remember vividly being at school and watching the the fight against Steve Robinson in September nineteen ninety five. I went to a posh boarding school, and uh, I boarded in my final year. That was my final year, uh, and then the TV room was just full of like fifty lads watching that fight, and it was kind of split. You know, a lot of people back Robinson because he was just a really good guy, good story. Um, and the others kind of wanted wanted Naz to win. I, people always say about fighters like him that you either loved him or you hated him. And that was probably generally true. But for me, I've never had a problem separating admiration for a fighter's ability um, from uh, a general indifference for their kind of persona. I loved watching him. I would never miss one of his fights. Um, 
as for his personality at that point, I thought he was a bit of a dickhead, to be honest with you. But it, it wasn't a problem for me. You know, I didn't, I didn't hate him. I just, I, I, like I say, I love watching him. So, Matt, you were, you were at that point as he was blazing a trail from the kind of early mid-90s onwards. I mean, you were getting really into your boxing at that point, making some waves as a junior, um, as an amateur, uh, then as a youth. Uh, and Nassim was, he was the shit, wasn't he? There's no better phrase for it than that. But for, for youngsters coming through at that point, everybody wanted to be Naz. Oh, Naz. Naz was the man at that time. So I boxed that um, small league boxing club. I'd been to, uh, I'd been beaten, I think, in a couple of schoolboy semifinals and a final, real close ones, but I hadn't won a national title yet. And I I think it was a week or two before the Naz Kelly fight. I won the NABC's Class A, so I just won my first national title. So I was very much in the, you know, that period of where you're boxing, where you're achieving, you've got experience now, you've been doing it a while, um, but you're totally fascinated in love with the sport. You you know, you're dreaming, you know, you're watching the big fights on Sky, you're staying up till four o'clock in the morning, every single time there's a big fight on, you know. But funnily enough, that that particular fight, Nas Kelly, occasionally I do a bit of glass collecting um, at this Irish club pub, uh, that did functions and it was there was a wedding on and we knew the people at the wedding as well so it was one of those I was working but I knew everyone at the wedding and you know you would, I wanted to get finished up in the residence bar because I wanted to get up home in time to watch the fight so anyway we ended up literally me I think my sister a cousin of mine from Ireland there was, there was a, I think there was someone else with us in the taxi and we were literally the, ta- the fight was on as we were in the taxi on the way home to watch the fight and like it was just, you know, <laughs> it was just pandemonium in the taxi because it was an up and down affair. It was over, and we were like, "Wow, oh, is he?" And you're trying to, you know, you're literally going off the radio. I, I guess it might have been Mike Costello. I'm not sure, but um, you know, it was uh, it was dramatic. And then we got back into the house. Obviously, you know, watched the replays and all the rest of it. We had it recorded, but uh, no, I watched. I mean, I watched it all several times after. But I have to confess, uh, as it was playing out, we, we were about halfway down the country road back to Sully Hall from Small Heath. <laughs> well, I watched it. I, I watched it at home. Uh, my parents were living in Chester at that point, um, and it, yeah, the week before Christmas, it was it was magic. But um, Adam, just to go back to the kind of start, if you like, Naz made his debut in '92, which would have been round about the time that you started at Sky, maybe? It was, bit, it was a little bit before, Andy. I started in 1994. So my first real workings, obviously, I knew about him. I'd, I'd, I'd gone and seen sort of the scene in Sheffield before that. But I was at ITN before I was at Sky um, on the news desk. So I, I sort of knew of him and, and obviously watched every fight of his. But we didn't get close until he came over to Sky. So... I began in the summer of 94 and in the summer of 1995, Frank Warren had brought all his stable over um, just after, you know, Nigel Benn fought Gerald McClellan and we had Frank Bruno and Nigel Benn and and Nassim Hamid sort of came with us. And we had a couple of fights, um, one in Shepton Mallet and one at the Royal Albert Hall before he fought Steve Robinson. And I remember going up to interview him and, we did a we did a sort of a, a piece a half an hour um, just the other side of the road opposite St Thomas's Club just near Brendan's house in in a garden of the church there, and I remember just being f- 
honestly just captivated with him and he he had this way of of speaking which just drew you in and I think it was the start of you know many sort of um almost like tussles we had um over the years um as interviewer and interviewee where we always just try to sort of get the the best out of each other and and he'd throw a couple of jabs back and some some knives at times and and you know he wasn't afraid to say what he thought uh, of all um and then we sort of conducted that through through the the history but Around the Steve Robinson time, you know, we'd obviously followed Steve Robinson and he was the Cinderella story. Um, you know, he'd made a number of really good defences of his, his world featherweight title. And, you know, there's a lot of people that expected him to, to teach the the young whippersnapper, the young, brash, arrogant, cocky kid a lesson. Um, and Naz, I mean, I don't think he really trained very hard for the Robinson fight. I think maybe he did two and a half, three weeks, which is crazy thinking about what fighters go through now. Um, Steve had come off a honeymoon as well. So, so the fight was pretty hastily put together, but Robinson was always fit and focused and it was a rainy night down in Cardiff at the old arms park. And I think there were about 16,000 screaming, uh, Welsh people there down there to, to get on Naz's chest. And I remember him coming out with all the, the swagger and you can see big Johnny and Clifton Mitchell and everyone around him. And there was sort of, you know, eight Sheffields against this whole sort of baying crowd. And he was absolutely incredible that night. And, you know, he stood Steve Robinson on his head. And that's when you had to take him seriously. I remember Ian Dark's line of, you know, the prince becomes king. And, uh, you know, that was that was the real start when, um, you know, we knew what he had done at a slightly lower level than, you know, climbing up now into the featherweight division. But going in with a, a very tough warrior, um, even though he wasn't probably the most skillful, Steve Robinson, I would admit that, that he was a great story and he battled for everything and you know he, he was it was a, a passing of the torch and Nasib that got that and then the fun began with all the defenses and then the unifications and as he started to sort of breeze his way through not just with his incredible skills and his balance he could have been an acrobat Nas at five three and a half with the, the tree trunk legs and, and, and the, the flexibility but what he did show was incredible power to go with the skills that he learned in Winker Bank and I think you know, many of those fighters could do what Naz did in the gym, but they didn't have that incredible pound for pound power that Hammond had. Um, plus, you add the, the flip into the ring and the interview afterwards. The whole thing was like a drama show. It was like theatre. I remember my dad coming to a fight at Wembley for Juan Cabrera. He knocked him out in a couple of rounds. And my dad sat up in the stands and he said it was just amazing watching the whole sort of entrance, the the flip, the the show the knockout, then the interview afterwards. It was like a sort of, although it was such a short fight, it was almost like an hour of entertainment, like going to, you know, to, to the theatre. And, and he thought it was mesmerising. And of course, so many people did. And like you said, a lot of people wanted him to lose. So there was that sort of, you know, would he win? Could he keep it going? And it just appealed to everybody. And uh, could you imagine him now in the in the era of social media? And I mean, how enormous he'd be now. He was massive then. But today, in today's world, you know, you you just can't you can't get to grips with how big he could have been. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids! Hey, everybody! Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it.
Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Well, you know, I'm just thinking now. You're talking about the Steve Robinson fight. There was um, so my mum's uncle. He, he, you know, he lived from Ireland, living in, in Birmingham for years. He was the meanest man God ever put on this earth. He he, he died with loads of dough in the bank. Do you know what I mean? He didn't have a telly. He wouldn't buy a telly because he was that tight. But he loved the boxing, and he used to always come round our house and stay all night then watching the fights. He absolutely detested Naz. He hated him. <laughs> and every single time Naz would fight, you're like, that's it now. This fella will definitely beat him. This fella will definitely beat him. And when it comes to the Steve Robinson fight, he'd been a Steve Robinson fan. Because like you say, Steve Robinson, he never had nothing easy, did he? He was a tough, you know, he was a real trial, wasn't he? He got everything out of himself. So, he, you know, he was he was. His hatred for Naz meant he couldn't see his ability and he was just completely convinced that Steve Robinson was going to beat him. And, he, and when Steve Robinson when he, you know, put on the performance he did and he was punch perfect against Steve Robinson, it was, like, it was one of the funniest nights we've ever had in our homes. But there were people. Matt, I remember we had a director. He was a VT op at Sky, then a director, a chap called Graham Spink. And, and he was always at the at the boxing. And every time it was like, Naz is going to get done here. He's going to get knocked on his ass. I hate him with a passion. You know, it was that. And then there was the people who just wanted to be there to see what would happen next. The unpredictability, the, the brilliant ring entrances to, to designed by our director, Mike Allen, who sort of had him, you know, coming through fire and on in cars and through waterfalls and on the magic carpets. And people just wanted to see, look, could he back it all up? And, you know, most of the time he could emphatically. What was amazing about him, and and I didn't appreciate this at the time because I was I was a kid and I wasn't working in the job that I'm doing now. But 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 we talk sometimes in in meetings and things and around fight nights about fighters who are coming through and, and what kind of ingredients they've got. But but you're not just talking ability; you're talking about star quality. You're talking about marketability. You're talking about all of those things. He just was. He was like a gift from the gods wasn't he in terms of television uh, there must have been this sense that oh my god you know we've got this perfect perfect fighter because as we saw later in his career particularly in this kelly fight there was there was a touch of vulnerability there there was this absurd power and he just embraced the showbiz side of it like 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 nobody else apart from somebody like eubank maybe but he was a lot better to watch than eubank and when Eubank came up to Sheffield in the early days, Naz says it was him that taught Chris Eubank the tricks. You know, Eubank, we know, jumped over the rope. He vaulted over, didn't he? He did all the stuff with that, and he was amazing. But, you know, Naz was flipping, and there was a, there was a bit of rivalry between the two of them because, obviously, Chris came first and, and got onto that stage. But Naz always claims that he was the one that sort of, you know, t- told him to do that. And there was a bit of... A little bit of animosity between the two. And I remember them sort of appearing on the same show as well. And, and that was a, a part of the story. But you're absolutely right. And, and I think for a featherweight as well, because obviously, you know, the big box office nights are normally around the Blue Ribbon division, the heavyweights. That's what the casual fans sort of, you know, gravitate towards. But the the fact that there was this, you know, nine stone fighter. And believe me, on fight night, he was a lot heavier than that with some of the stuff he ate. Um, but he was just a phenomenon because 
because no one expected anyone at, at that weight to punch like he did. So he had that. He had the the braggadocious, the, the the cocky, the sort of confident, the the boasting attitude. You know, you know, I'm not bragging or anything, but I'm just too good. You know, it was all of that, and it, he loved Muhammad Ali, and he he'd sort of watched so much of Ali, and I think he. He just came at a time as well, Andy, where, you know, Sky in the early days, and we were looking for, for anything that could sort of, you know, get one up on the, the terrestrials, sort of make a, a splash, make a noise. We had the football, we had a bit of rugby league, a little bit, of, and the boxing came, and, and suddenly we had this showman. And of course, we had Nigel Benn and Frank Bruno, and through Don King and Frank Warren's relationship, we had Mike Tyson, we had others, Lennox Lewis, but we had no one. We had the Eubank World Tour going on, but we had no one as young and as aspiring and the one and that the, the kids could get around it was almost like he was a bit of a pied piper in a way around Sheffield because he he would walk out the gym and you'd see all the the, the people follow him it, it was it was really incredible and then of course the family got involved and the politics and Brendan and the split and there were other stories that went through then he went to, to Emmanuel Stewart and Oscar Suarez and you know, different things happened at different stages. As you, as you said, the vulnerability came in, but what never ever went away was that appeal. The fact that you just had to watch him. You just, everything he said, you know, he would literally walk into a room and you would gravitate to him. There would be a, an aura in there. And, and, and for a five foot three guy, that's not a bad sort of statement. He had, in my opinion, everything. And I think it's slightly disappointing that he didn't in many ways go further. You know, he was, it was always talked about whether he'd fight the Floyd Mayweather's, the Diego Corrales's. He didn't go up in weight. You know, he, he, he went like that sort of too soon after Barrera. We had the Manuel Calvo fight. He told me he was going to fight every eight weeks. He was going to do a little tour a la Eubank. Never happened. Went away, made that huge money, and we lost him. But I tell you, the period we had him, electric. I think it's very different. To, you look back at that time as well and you think how often they were fighting. And I think one of the big things today, one of the big problems for fighters is they're not fighting regularly enough. In terms of building a star, they're only boxing twice a year. They've forgotten about quite quickly where you're boxing regularly, you're getting the build-up, you're getting the night of the fight, you're getting the fight week, you're getting the aftermath. You're constantly in the public eye, so to speak. I mean, and when you, when you think that Naz was able to do multi-million pound deals with sponsors like PlayStation and Adidas, when you know how difficult, difficult it is for boxers to kind of get those mainstream brands associated with them, it shows you just how crossover he was. Absolutely. You know, the Adidas deal was just incredible. The HBO contract as well, you know, for a, for a Brit, for an English fighter to get something like that. And uh, yeah, of, of course, he was um, he was a massive, massive star. And it, and it all came out on the American debut when, you know, when he went over to New York and, you know, the Adidas commercials, the flipping in, the landing on the on the uh, on the seashore and all that. It was just it was amazing that the massive posters in Times Square, that it was just a time where I will never forget. And I think, you know, I could count probably on one hand my, my favourite experiences being at, at ringside through Sky, through all the sort of different, you know, eras, the different fighters, the different countries we visited. But I think the, the Hammond Kelly experience in New York at Madison Square Garden, at the Mecca, and everything that went on around it, is is right up there.
Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Matt talked about the activity there, and that, that's something that, that really sticks out when you look at his record. He boxed six times in 1994. In the middle of that was the win against Vincenzo Belcastro to take the European title. Extraordinary performance over 12 rounds. Uh, he couldn't box for the British title because he wasn't old enough. So he went straight to the European. Prior to that, he'd had, he'd had learning fights, and he, we talk about people stepping up. You know, can they step up? Uh, we saw Josh Kelly try it the other week. It was too soon against an opponent who was too strong as it turned out not for Nassim and in 95 he boxed he boxed five times a final fight with Steve Robinson 96 four times 97 five times again finishing out the year with with Kelly so from that kind of Robinson period oh actually one thing I was going to mention Matt was that talking about people who would love him or hate him surely one section of people who would have hated him would have been amateur coaches up and down the country because they're trying to teach you to box the, the 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 textbook way that all of a sudden the next week you're all going to be coming in dragging your gloves on the floor dipping at the waist you know it must have been a nightmare for that well, well my old amateur coach is a guy called pat benson paddy benson irish fella from mayo and very good friends with brendan ingle because they would have come through together and they were both anti-establishment you know what I mean so the year that Naz won the junior ABAs and should have got best boxer they actually gave it to a guy called Dean Cruz from Small Heat uh, who was a weight or two below Naz and he got he won the he won them and he got best boxer and I bought Pat number saying to me he said listen Dean was good he said but Naz 100% hands down should have got it but they didn't give it him because they could they couldn't stand the way he his style and he wouldn't conform to their way of doing things so, Adam, just 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 tell us a bit about that relationship between between Naz and Brendan, then, because we most people listening to this will know the story of how he spotted him in a playground, evading punches, and he, he got him down to the gym early on. And what the relationship between Brendan and, and the Hamed sort of family, how it how it started, and and and, and how tight it was at one point. We, we'll get on later to how it how it went wrong. Yeah, well, you know when when he was. Spotted Naz as, um, as I say, you know, like a like a street kid almost. And you know, Sal had a shop. The Hammers had a, a, a little news agency at the top of the road. Um, and it wasn't just Naz. You know, the others came in as well. Nabil tried it. I mean, there were the, there were five brothers, uh, four sisters, five brothers, who were all sort of you know at one time or other in and around it. Riath, who later became the business manager, Nabil, who. Who tried as well to fight Ali, who was um, who was quite good. The uh, the fourth brother, quieter one, different one, and then Murad, who was very like Naz. He was the the young sort of flash one, um, and they were all sort of around there. But Naz was the one that, that obviously had the talent and Stark. And I think from from a very a very early age, they could see the the potential. Um, and Brendan was was like a father figure. You mentioned the amateurs and, and how much they sort of hated Naz, but you know Brendan Ingle, you know they they didn't like Brendan Ingle's style, did they? I mean. 
mean, he was all circles and lines and, you know, he was all there to, to evade punches, to miss. And, you know, he wasn't your textbook sort of, you know, amateur style. So they were always trying to do things differently. And the other thing Brendan did was he'd take Naz and all these fighters around with him. You know, he, he they go into to, to see other fights. You know, they wouldn't just, you know, go to the amateurs or whatever. They'd bring them ringside for the pro fights. And he wanted to get them that experience. And, and, and inside the gym... As I said before, there was you know there was no egos allowed. Everybody was was treated the same. Everybody had to go and sing a nursery rhyme or do something or song or whatever in front of the others. That's how he dealt with confidence. And it was it was also about you know making sure that they were better for having been in the gym, you know, out in in life. So it wasn't just boxing, but obviously there were certain talents that really stood out. Ryan later on, Kell Brook, um, but but Naz was you know was extraordinary, and they knew they had something special with him, but. But it was, I mean, it was a, a an amazing sort of sight to see a sort of almost like a father figure, a tutor, a, a, a tactician. Uh, you know, he was, Brendan was brilliant because he'd talk all the time. You know, he was the one that went and opened the gym at six o'clock in the morning. He'd be the last one to leave. He'd sit in the corner, he'd watch it all. You'd go and have your chats with him. It was, it was wonderful. He took it all in and you know, Naz was was a real project for him. And, and uh, you know, it ended with sort of John and John taking him on the pads and Dominic. But Brendan did most of the work with him, certainly for the early days and the early part of his career. And it was a, a massively important part in, 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 in Naz's journey. And, um, you know, there's there'll be critics who'll sit there and say when he left the Ingles, he was never quite the same. Of course, he was at a different level at that point. And, you know, he went to Emmanuel Stewart and Oscar Suarez, two excellent trainers. Um, there was a bit of a conflict there because there were sort of two of them. But with Brendan, you know, he, he was the perfect fighter for Brendan Ingle, wasn't he? You know, Harold Graham had shown before um, how good he was, probably the best fighter never to win a world title. But but Naz had everything and he had that power that went with it. So he was definitely Brendan's uh, protege, Brendan's you know, piece of history in many ways. And it was sad what happened at the end with the split, but uh, certainly an incredible relationship for many, many years. So after that, that win against, against Robinson, as we said, he's fighting regularly, he's fighting everywhere as well. They took him everywhere. There was a, a really arena that could hold him, to be honest, Glasgow, Newcastle, Dublin, Manchester, the London arena. I remember that. That was, that was near where I, I first lived when I came down to London. Wembley Arena, Sheffield, of course, that was his home turf. And you mentioned that fight against Jose Badillo, which was, which was extraordinary in, in, in so many ways. At what point during that kind of, during those run of fights, did, did, you, did the American odyssey become a possibility? At what point did, because, I mean, this was a very difficult thing to do then. You think about how many fighters from this country who have ever really crossed over to the United States and it's not, it's not many. It's still the biggest market and still very difficult to crack. Well, they went over and, you know, nine times out of 10, they lost and they came back. And, and you know, that was a, you know, now we look at British boxing as a powerhouse, but then it was all about, you know, the US and the amateur teams and the Olympics and all the success they'd had. 
I think with Naz, you know, the Marmite type figure. So I think those times you, you remember, and I remember, you know, I remember them all so clearly, you know, Saeed Lawal, who he came out and one shot, bang, the fight was over. Jim Watt called it straight away. Then you had Daniel Alicia up in Newcastle. And, you know, first time Naz had ever been down. Everyone's like, right, that's it. That's the vulnerability. What did he do? He just knocked him out in the very next round. You had Manuel Medina, where he was ill that night. You know, it was in Dublin and, and, and Manuel Medina sort of, he fought as a Mexican since he was he was a pro, I think, at 13 or 14, a, maybe a, a four-time, you know, featherweight champion. He was just so hardened, and Naz wasn't right that night. He was you know, coughing and spluttering in the corner. Brendan nursed him through, and he still knocked him down several times, got the win. Remigio Molino, he blew away. Tom Boom Boom Johnson, you know, fantastic performance. So, yeah, probably slightly fading Boom Boom. Great matchmaking from Frank Warren. And then you've got, you know, you, you came up with Billy Hardy, who was like, right, he was was again a bit like Steve Robinson everyone loved Billy Hardy you know from the northeast and a real sort of down-to-earth guy and you know and, and there was all the sort of the the the, the mocking and the build-up between the two of them and he just absolutely destroyed him in Manchester you know then Juan Cabrera we mentioned Jose Badillo it was a time honestly I've got to admit it as a young reporter you fell in love with him and I think that was a big problem for me and I remember when I had a, a, a difficulty with Naz in Atlantic City and, and he turned on me and, and it was all to do with an interview I did with, with Brendan and the split. And I remember just calling my dad in, almost in tears going, I can't believe it, you know, I've, I've, I've messed it up. And he goes, you know, he said, Adam, he said, look, you know, this is, you're a journalist and you need to, you need to stay slightly further away. You know, you, you, we got sucked in. Frank Warren did. Frank Warren will tell you now that Naz was his favourite and, you know, he was, he was buying things for him and doing things for him because he had that, to know, it was that, not just an aura, but he just drew you in. And I think when you saw him winning all these performances, you, you went with it. You thought he could do anything. He can conquer America. He can, he can beat anybody. And, and I think we all got, carried away you said we were on the I was on the train and driving it I was I was just fortunate enough to be on that train and, and I think there was there was a an admiration a passion for him and I probably did get too close you know I still love him today and we still chat every now and again but you know it was it was it was a very intense relationship that that I had with him and I think I going to New York and I went two weeks before the fight you know I went and I had a, a week sort of around New York before even the fight week so it was a, an extra special one for me and I think you know I was sent because I was close to him and maybe in many ways got too close and got sort of sucked in but I tell you what if that was if that was a mistake I'm glad I made it because it was a lot of fun but yeah conquering America you know if you stood back and that's where Ian Dark and Glenn McCrory were so good because they were you know they were like don't you know don't, let's not get carried away with him you know we call the fights as we see it and you're always telling us Naz is a really good guy and he's you know he's not he's never been nice to the press he's never been this I'm like come on give him a chance you know you've got to go with him and there was a little bit of conflict there and really Ian and Glenn were right and they were they were calling it the right way and you know, we get, Matt and I and, and, and everybody at Sky get, you know, tarred occasionally with sort of the bias to matchroom brush. And no, you know, I've I learned at a very young age that when you pick up that microphone to commentate, you call it as it is. And there's no bias at all. You have to do that. But I think as a time when I wasn't a commentator, as a young reporter, I was caught up in the fun. You know, Thomas Bradley, Anna Saweda, Clifton Mitchell, you know, Ryan Rhodes. You know, I wanted to hang with them. I wanted to be in the, in the suite with them eating their, their mad Burger King 
cooking meals and having a laugh. And I couldn't quite get in there with them because I was holding the, the mic. But I, I tried and, um, you know, it was it was an incredible time. And and I, for one, believed he would conquer America. And, uh, you know, it was it was weird, the Kelly fight, because, of course, he got knocked down many times and there was the vulnerability shown. But, you know, it, there was a bit of me afterwards that thought, oh, I wish he'd been punched perfect. But no, that wasn't Naz. It was all about entertainment. And oh, my God, he went down unbelievably in New York. You know, he backed it up because he went in there and he had a firefight with, with Kevin Kelly. You know, he didn't stick and move and box and move, which maybe Brendan would have liked him to have done. He went out and he had a tear up. And that made the Americans just love him. Adam, I've, I've boxed in Madison Square Garden, not the main room, but the theatre on St. Patrick's Day. But I've been to New York many, many times and I've been to many fights around that, that weekend in New York. And, and, and New York at Christmas in December, when I turn the lights on at the rock, it's a, it's a truly magical place to be. And of course, Madison Square Garden, it's still the Mecca. For me, it's still the Mecca. I know there's been a lot of fights in Vegas probably in the last 10 years, but Madison Square Garden, there's just something about it. What... What was it like that week? Was it was it another level again? Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. Absolutely right. And I think, honestly, we've had wonderful times with Ricky Hatton, with Carl Froch, David Hay, Lennox, loads of fighters, Amir and, and obviously AJ and, and many other big box office names over the years. But there was something different being around Naz. And, and I think when we went to New York, you know, as I said, I went, I went over on the same plane as him. He was obviously up in first class. We were, you know, struggling back somewhere. But, you know, I had a, I had a little camera and I was trying to get permission in those days, you know, trying to film on the plane and all that sort of stuff. And so I sort of had a camcorder. Then I, I, I looked, I sort of met up with cameraman over there. But, but what happened was it was quite an important this that Ryan Rhodes had a world title fight the week before. So I think the fight was on the 19th of December and the 12th of December, Ryan had his first world title fight against Otis Grant and Ryan had you know won the British title the Lonsdale belt in record time he was absolutely flying you know he was the spice boy but it was all him and Naz Ryan and Naz and Naz had, you know obviously was slightly further ahead with his career but they were best buddies and and Naz had to be in America for this fight a bit early obviously with with the uh you know, with the, the acclimatization and the, the time difference. So he went over two weeks before and I went with him, but Ryan still had his fight against Otis Grant. And um, on that Saturday night, the week before, I, I went up to the, to the suite in uh, the New York Palace Hotel that Naz had, and we listened to the commentary on phones. We couldn't get any television signal pictures, whatever. We had 
we were listening literally on the sort of the house phones in the in the uh, hotel and listening to Ian and Glenn's commentary of Ryan and Otis Grant and I always felt Ryan should have become a world champion uh, like middleweight but it was at middleweight and it was against a tough guy a Canadian who was really well schooled it was a hard fight and he and he lost he lost on points and uh, obviously we we didn't see it all we heard was was Ian and Glenn and, and Naz could not come to terms with it you know his boy his best mate had been beaten and he was like ah, and he wouldn't talk to about Ian and Glenn he was like when they arrive I'm gonna I'm gonna tear them apart you know how dare they call a fight like that and I know my man won and all that sort of stuff so though there was there was that added drama to the fight week as well but of course when we got over there it was all about Naz and the uh, the the billboards everywhere you know he sort of went around Manhattan and they were you know it was just the prince had landed in New York or you know the prince is here and everyone was like you could see people sort of looking up at them thinking what what is going on and there was you know Times Square there's normally the big movies and all that and there was you know pictures of Nas and you know the prince is going to be king and and it was all it was very heavily uh, orientated towards Nas's appearance in America and Kevin Kelly didn't like it one little bit you know he was a New Yorker a proud New Yorker and he had a mouth as loud as as Nas I remember going around New York and doing um, interviews, you know, down in Wall Street and Chinatown, up in Harlem, and sort of saying, you know, going around with a picture of Nas going, you know this guy? This guy's the prince. He's Prince Nassim. They're going, I don't know who you're talking about or whatever. (laughs) You got to Harlem. I go, this is Prince Nassim. They go, yeah, there ain't no prince in New York. Kevin Kelly going to destroy your man and all that. So there was a real buzz around it. And, you know, Kelly had this sort of, you know, he was like, how can this sort of this upstart, you know, come over and, and take over my city? You know, this is New York. This is the flushing flash. This is my neck of the woods. And, and that just added to it. And being over there, Matt, it was, and you're right, at Christmas time, New York is just a wonderful place. You know, the ice skating in Central Park and the, the shots and the lights. And it's just, it is a phenomenal time. And, you know, to have this this fight and the backdrop and, and everybody excited about it and wanting to be there, celebrities wanting to be there. And then you had these press conferences where you know, Nas would get up and goes, don't worry, Kevin, you know, I'm going to give you a nice little job, a nice job after I knock your ass out. You can put all my posters up. I don't want them. I want them all neat. No creases in them, Kevin boy, no creases, all neat and tidy. Posters, not just in New York, all around America. I'm going to give you a job after the fight. You had that. You also had Kennedy McKinney and Junior Jones on the card. Now, that was a fantastic chief support. And as it happened, turned out to be another absolute barn burner. Junior Jones from New York, poisoned Junior Jones, you know, knocked out Marco Antonio Barrera. Kennedy McKinney, the Olympic gold medalist. There was a great undercurrent there. I remember that a phenomenal line. McKinney turned to Jones and said, your ass is grass and I'm the lawnmower and I thought you know it's just little things like that that you just remember I remember thinking that fight's as good as the main event but it's not the main event it's going to get lost here in the wash and it was just it was it was incredible and then they come head to head and you know it was like there was a bit where Kevin was like don't be running Naz don't be running don't be doing any of this I'm going to stand and fight you Kevin I'm going to fight you and knock you spark out and it was all this it was just it was brilliant. You, you just, there was a buzz of electricity. And of course, because it was in New York, because we were approaching the Mecca, Madison Square Garden, it, it was it was a build-up like virtually no other I've been involved with. And actually the finite itself exceeded. You know, with AJ Klitschko, where you sort of got that perfect build-up, you just hoped, you just hoped with 90,000 people, we'd get a classic. And we did. 
And in New York, we got that. We got every bit of it. And it was just, oh, living it back now and thinking about it and, and Naz waiting to come out and, and Kevin on the ring apron. And I'm backstage with Naz and he's waiting and he's like, I'm not going yet. And there's all the floor managers trying to get him out. And he's like, ah, I'm just going to stay. And it was just, it was incredible. Incredible. And the atmosphere in there, Piers Brosnan was there. I interviewed Donald Trump that night. Big mad John McCreary was sitting with us at ringside. Everybody was just tight in there. And it was Oh, it was, it was, yeah, it was something quite extraordinary. And of course, Ian and Glenn, who called the fight, who'd come over from Sheffield and had to take the abuse that Naz was throwing at them. And Ian was like, you know, just never accepted that, that, you know, we, we as broadcasters should be spoken to like that. But that was Naz's way. And, and he, he, he didn't care. Tell you what, listening to you go on about it there, I'm gutted that I wasn't there. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, you'll never forget that cab ride. You'll never forget where you, you know, you always remember where you were. You remember when Tyson yeah. fought, fought Buster Douglas and I was in a, American college and I remember sort of American footballers crying that night. You never forget where you are when these things happen. And sometimes you're lucky enough to be there and sometimes you're not. And it was just one that I, I was fortunate enough to be very much involved in. And um, yeah, massive highlight. So a lot of the things you've, you've just been describing, I watched yesterday on the, the Sky special when Naz hits New York. So when, when people have finished listening to this, if you haven't watched that, um, or if you even if you haven't, it was a while ago, watch it again, because uh, all the things that Adam has just been talking about, uh, they're there. Uh, and, and some other footage there as well, which is interesting, which is there were signs. I don't know whether it's the benefit of hindsight or whether it appeared like this at the time, but there were maybe signs that there were cracks in that relationship between Nassim and, and Brendan Ingle. There's a training session they show where he's he's obviously not particularly happy, but then you just mentioned the the kind of funk he was in after the Ryan Rhodes result. I mean, looking back on it, at the time, did you think, ah, oh, this isn't this isn't great? Or did you think, oh, it's just a tension of fight week? Or, or was that maybe the beginning of it all? That's a really good question. I think Naz was very excited that people like Michael Jackson were coming to visit him in the gym. You know, that was, it was a celebrity thing. And remember, you know, being the sort of star attraction and, and, and taking over America was, was almost more important than anything else, you know. And, and I think he probably believed he had the natural ability to deal with Kevin Kelly, who was on a, a winning streak. But, he, you know, he, he, was, he was fancied to, to, to defend his title in style. And I think... You know, I think he probably maybe that was the the beginning of some difficulties. And of course, then, you know, with the, the brothers coming involved and, and, and beginning to sort of not take control at that point, but certainly be more and more around Naz. And I think that, yeah, I, I felt it more with the Wayne McCulloch fight in Atlantic City. Um, but there were there was some tension after the Ryan Rose loss. And I think when we got to Atlantic City, it was. That was a nightmare week because he was uh, he missed coming down to London with his visa. He had to go in five days before the fight. He had to get Concord over there. He was in a bad mood when he arrived. It was it was after an interview that I did with with Brendan where he called Brendan a Judas, you know. And 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 I think now, Naz, I'm sure he regrets that. I know that he tried to patch it up with Brendan very much before Brendan passed and and and, and talked to the, the sons and goes to Sheffield and, and a lot more now. And, and oh, obviously, you know, he's, he was a young kid then. But, you know, I remember him bringing his his baby who, who is, you know, they're now 
grown kids and Adam is now fighting, which is incredible. Um, but Sammy, his eldest, he brought in a baby and, and it was like this, this different sides of Naz, almost a Jekyll and Hyde, which you got with him, which was that you know, Brendan Ingle's a Judas, Brendan Ingle never trained me, I did it all myself. And then, oh, here's my beautiful baby and I'm going to do everything for him. And that was the the, the sides of Naz, you know, it was, it was the wonderful sort of warmth and then that sort of you know that the, the dagger side, the the and and that probably what made him a great fighter as well that he had the the switch that he could do that. But look, he he was he was, yeah, the cracks probably were there. And then obviously with what happened on the night as well. And I think, but I think it was the Atlantic City experience where he really didn't. He was like looking at like that when Brenda was talking to him in the corner. And I think the writing was you know was definitely on the wall then. But you know it was a shame because they you know he, he was such a part of the story, Brendan. And I think Naz, if he has a regret now, it probably would be that it ended like that and it was acrimonious for a long time. But you know they. They tried to patch it up, or certainly he did with the Ingle family. Um, but it was, yeah, it probably at times, and I think everyone would say that he took his eye off the ball. He thought his natural talent would just get him out of jail. And, you know, I think even when he fought Marco Antonio Barrera, with Barrera training in the snow of Big Bear Mountains every morning, every night, and Naz was sort of hanging out, you know, down at a, a beautiful house. I think it was Sinatra or, or Bob Hope's old house. And, you know, he's playing golf and then he trained frenetically but it was all a bit you know sporadic and you know and and I don't know maybe you know it was difficult with the uh the pressure of fame and the fact that you know he was the man all the time but natural talent yeah I mean natural talent got him out of it quite a lot didn't it in his the latter parts of his career and you know but around that time I think we were all just caught up in the fact of could Naz have this incredible impression on New York and and he did. So we sort of forgot about that other side. But it, it then reared again pretty soon afterwards. Well, it nearly went wrong on the night, didn't it? I mean, in the end, it was his power that got him out of jail. Yeah, it, it did, of course. You know, he was knocked down so early in the fight and that was very dramatic. And yeah, he just... But he did. He promised he was going to stand and fight. And I think, you know, maybe he went against Brendan a little bit. You know, sometimes... You see that when a fighter, we even saw that, you know, the other night, didn't we, Matt? When suddenly a fighter does something the trainer's not saying, telling him to do or vice versa. It's a difficult relationship. And and I think that for so long, Naz had done everything that Brendan asked of him. And Brendan had steered him so beautifully. But, you know, he was he was, he was was riled up by Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly was standing up to him. He was the first guy that sort of, you know, put the heat on him and said, right, come on then. You know, don't be a chicken now. You know, you're in New York now. Prove it. And Naz could have probably boxed his way to victory and done it a lot easier but you know he wanted the he wanted to stand in front of him and when he got knocked down that was it you know the the fire was lit the fuse and 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 off he wanted he wanted to do it that way listen he did it with Augie Sanchez you know there were other times in his career where Augie had him in trouble as well you know in Connecticut and 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 he was like right that's it back to back to what you know back to these beauties and that's what's going to do it and look at Kevin Kelly how he destroyed him in the end look at how Augie Sanchez was knocked out in the end you know he knew he had that power he could rely on to get him out of problems and um, that's what made him so electric and the vulnerability of him being knocked down or hurt just added to it well on the night it was it was it was it was chaos. It was absolute mayhem. He, he went down in the, he, well, first of all, Kelly was livid at being left in the ring for so long because I think there was some problem with the pyrotechnics. And then, and then as you said, he, he wanted to make him wait anyway, which is a fairly standard trick, but he got, he got properly caught in the first round. He was kind of pulling out from a corner, uh, landed with a right hand, Kevin Kelly and the down, down as went. Then um, in the second round, they both went down in the second round. 
no knockdowns in the third round. Then they were both down in the fourth round, and then Kelly got stopped. It was, it, it, as you said, like when you when you're talking about television and and marketability and bums on seats and pay per view sales and things like that. It's not necessarily the best thing if somebody goes in there, puts on a masterclass and, and takes somebody out in three or four rounds and it's one-sided. That's not necessarily the best thing. As an American TV debut went, it could not possibly have been any better, could it? I think as the week went, it couldn't have been any better. You know, to have Michael Jackson at that point of his career walk into the gym with other celebrities, to have Piers Brosnan, James Bond at the time at ringside, you know, it was it was a people were just fascinated. There were those who who had heard about him, and then there were those who just wanted to 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 know what all the fuss was about. And the fact he was called, you know, Prince Nassim as well. It's like, is he, you know, is he a member of the royal family? You know, what what is the truth here? What is the, you know, who is this guy? And I think it is that sort of magnetism, you know, we, we all had that when we were growing up watching Mike Tyson, and you just wanted to see what he'd do next. And yeah, I mean, that whole sort of week was was just an incredible build-up. But then on the night, and you've got I remember that you'd have the, the McKinney and, and Jones, you know, terrific battle, which had set the scene. So it wasn't a boring undercard or anything. It was an electric undercard. You know, Ricky Hatton had fought Danny Williams. You know, there was there was a lot of Brit interest over there as well. And, and you know, Did very early. travel over, Adam? Did many huh? travel over? Did a lot travel over from here? Yeah, there were. There were a lot of Brits that came over. Um, and there were a lot, yeah, so there was, you know, a lot of hammered support. But there was also a lot of Americans around as well because of, you know, not just Kevin Kelly, but the fact of, as I said, this curiosity. Um, well, certainly they felt like that as well. It didn't feel like, sometimes, you know, with Ricky Hatton, you felt like you were in Britain. But it didn't feel like that. It felt like you were in America with a with a bunch of sort of hammered fans and then the Americans who sort of wanted almost like to teach him a lesson. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is coming over saying he's going to destroy one of us? You know, he's going to be sent packing. I think there was all of that. And I think that Naz just was so confident. And that's where maybe when he lost to Barrera later on and didn't have the time he against Calvo and that bubble had sort of burst or... You know, he was a fighter who fought on confidence. And of course, he had the, the natural ability. He had the power. But when he was rolling, he didn't believe anyone could live with him. You know, he'd knock out heavyweights in sparring. You know, it was, it was, I don't know, it was, there was a, there was just a, a, a sort of like a force field around him that would say that, that it's not, it's not going to go wrong. There was no talk of it ever going wrong. Even when he got knocked down, it was like, you know, wow, that happened and bang, you know, he couldn't take my power, could he? And I think that whole sort of, you know, feeling on the night and Kelly beckoning him to come out and, you know, now sort of, you know, waiting and just, you know, taking his time, cool, calm. Yeah, there just wasn't any nerves. And I think maybe when he got knocked down, he thought, OK, hello, we're going to have to do it my way. Um, but yeah, it was it was just it was everything you wanted from a box office attraction from something that you wanted to, to to if you want to sort of make a statement you want to go and say right this is what all the fuss is about it's not just about the facts i'm going to win it's so much more than that i'm going to entertain i'm going to excite you i'm going to annoy you i'm going to infuriate you frustrate you and then i'm going to knock your man out and then i'm going to stand over him and i'm going to pick him up i'm going to say kevin come here we're going to be all all right it was just, and then it was like, when, where's the next one? You know, you wanted to be, can we have another one in six weeks' time, in, in two months' time? There was that, and there was that almost like, I remember the morning afterwards thinking, and I was slightly confused, he'd been knocked down loads of times, and there was Ian and Glenn saying, you know, is he as good as we thought he was? And I was just thinking, do you know what? 
He was amazing. I remember Ian running to me at one point with 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 a, a, a tape saying, oh, we've just done the weigh-in, right? Or knows that all the press conference of the weigh-in. Anyway, they've got the, the two of them are at each other for four or five minutes. And I'm like, yeah, but but the boss is back home. They want a two-minute piece. And Ian's like, what? Just run it. Get it in the tape machine and run it raw. It was incredible stuff. It was just phenomenal. And there was always a narrative with Naz. And, you know, being a being a broadcaster, being a journalist and loving stories and coming from the news world, you know, I did news background. I just, I loved it. I loved it because it was unpredictable. You didn't quite know what was going to happen next, but it was just, yeah, it all, everything, all Christmases came at once and it was Christmas time. I can't tell you how amazing it was that whole two weeks. It was just it was just a yeah. It was a it was a period of my life which I'll never forget. And as a young reporter, I was just I was privileged to be there. I played a tiny role in what was a huge happening, but it was just I was I was lucky that I was in the right place at the right time. Matt, something I always find to be a fascinating kind of exercise is, is when you look at these careers that burn really really bright. Often the 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 zenith, the apex comes, and nobody at the time realizes. Because as Adam said, you think, when's the next one? This is going to get bigger and better and we're going to go on and on and on and he's never going to lose and he's going to be a multiple weight world champion, undisputed. It's going to be the best thing that anyone's ever seen. You, you look at Tyson's career. Who would have thought when he boxed Spinks in, in June 1988 that that was going to be as good as it would ever get? Because it was. Because at that point, you just think, this guy's unstoppable. And, and who would have thought in Madison Square Garden in Christmas 1997 that that, that was probably, and, and it was, as, as you said, Adam, that was as good as it as it ever got. And he achieved an enormous amount, Nassim. But it's just interesting, isn't it, Matt, when you, you trace through a career and you just think, even everybody there at the time, they they you, you don't, you never really know, do you, where a career is going to go? No, and especially when you, you look back afterwards, because all, Everything comes out in the end, doesn't it? <laughs> all the, all the, the the shit from behind the scenes comes out in the wash. And actually, even look at the Mike Tyson against Michael Spinks performance, Naz against Kelly, they were breathtaking performances. But not what we know now, the, the, the wheels were coming off long before then, you know what I mean? And they were, they were kind of pulling out these performances in spite of all the bullshit that was going on behind the scenes. I mean, Michael Spinks, Mike Tyson, Tyson was probably at the peak of the chaos in his personal life going into the Michael Spinks fight, yet he blew him away inside, what, 90 seconds or something? You know, Naz, Kelly, Adam will know this way more than us, but we've seen the documentaries and things afterwards. And you, you could tell even at the time that the body language wasn't really right between them, between Brendan and Naz. Maybe he wasn't so bad with Dominic and uh, John and, and the rest of the lads. There was definitely something not right with Brendan and Naz, even even going into the Kelly fight, but he had that power. He had that power, and you know, all right, he didn't knock out Wayne McCullough, but I think you could hit Wayne McCullough with a baseball bat <laughs> and not knock him out. But you know, everyone else, all these Sanchez, you know, it was his power that was getting him out of jail. Yeah, I think because of uh, of all the excitement and entertainment and the headlines. Uh, it was covered up a little bit over in New York, but I think we really started to feel it. Um, behind the scenes. And I, and I think that money obviously was one thing. I think the family um, became a lot more involved in the business, especially um, sort of Riyadh and Nabil. 
I think they wanted to take the reins. Prince Promotions came out of it. Um, and I think then that, you know, obviously they, there needed to be a change in trainer because they were going to go another way. And, and Brendan had always been that the trainer and manager. And I think that, you know, they wanted to separate everything. There was the the big fallout publicly. You know, Naz called me up and said I wanted to do an interview. And then he let a lot of stuff out of the interview. And then they weren't happy they sort of wanted it to come down to sky and look at the interview and that's where i had a fallout with him temporarily because you know I, they said oh you shouldn't have put that interview on i said well you guys called us up to do it we have brendan's right of reply and it all became very nasty in atlantic city and i remember having a being sort of shoved into a, a, a it was in this in the bally's hotel in atlantic city being shoved into the sort of kitchens with naz the two of us and they were making strawberry mousse all around us. And he was shouting at me and screaming at me, going, you shouldn't have put that interview out. And I'm like, hang on a minute. I said, you know, you wanted that interview to go out. And, you know, just trying to explain a little bit how TV works. You know, when you, you've got an interview, you know, you put it out. And then, anyway, it was it was all a bit tricky. And he had a bad week in Atlantic City. As I said before, there was um, there was the, the jet lag, the lack of a visa, all those sort of problems. And he, he'd gone in and said, I'm going to not weigh McCulloch out in three rounds. And... And there was the Brendan and his relationship. I think Frank Warren as well. People were thinking about packing their bags. It was it was a very difficult time. And, you know, of course, he, he'd gone on with the, you know, the predictions. And, you know, Wayne McCulloch was going to be knocked out in three. And there was Wayne with, you know, with um, with his family. And he had his young baby, Winona, in, in a pram, I remember, with Cheryl. And they were sort of up and down the boardwalk. And, and you're thinking, you know, he's he's going to get absolutely destroyed here by Naz because, you know, you, you you followed the sort of hype. And of course, Wayne had a, a great chin and, and, and he was a tough and very, very good, capable fighter, world champion, of course. And, you know, it was never going to be an easy fight. But I think Naz and the whole chaos that you were talking about, maybe about to come to the scenes, really did that week in Atlantic City. And then things had to change. But, yeah, it was amazing he managed to sort of keep going and keep the victories despite what was happening behind the scenes. But, uh, but yeah, it was sort of tinged with sadness as well because people were falling out. He was turning on the press. You know, he turned on Colin Hart, I remember, on John Rawling. It wasn't just us. It was... Everyone was getting it. And uh, I remember Ian, when Ian did the interview afterwards, um, after the, uh, the fight Halloween in 1998 in Atlantic City, and, and he did the interview with Naz afterwards. I remember Naz saying, later, Curly, and walking off. And Ian was like, hey, can't talk to me like that. And, and he came back. And of course, you know, Naz was number one enemy at that point. And I remember he had a PR lady called Frankie Burson at the time. And Frankie said, look, you know, Ian Adam, would you come to, you know, have a, a coffee with him or something a few weeks down the line and we can patch all this up and I remember turning up and we had a you know we we're invited for sort of hot chocolate and sandwiches at the Dorchester I mean it had to be all the all the four seasons one of the two it had to be one of the, the top hotels in London I remember turning up and Naz had grown a beard and he was a bit he was a bit weightier and it was a completely different Naz it was like come here give us a hug and Ian you know all that and it was like you know it was all forgotten and back we went and it was all sort of friends again so you know look fighters have these times in their career which are difficult and actually Naz had it before he before he lost he had it when things were going you know going on in in the sort of the whole ingle and hammered sort of life and you know we weren't privy to everything but of course we saw quite a lot of it go on and we were we were used as well to do the interviews and to sort of tell the story and then it was all about a, a book that had come out from nick pitt the writer from the sunday times called the paddy and the prince and uh yeah you know um he had me in tears on the ball walk naz and 
but yeah, listen, he gave me a lot of laughs, a lot of pleasure at many other times. So I'll forgive him for that. And when he calls me up, he says, Adam Smith, remember, I made you, I made you, Adam Smith. I'm not, I'm, I'm not made. I'm just, I'm a commentator that commentates for Sky. You made, we made you a little bit, Naz, as well. I think we gave you a pretty good platform. But you know what? He had the talent and the, and the, and the character, the charisma to make himself. He was always going to be a superstar. And it just, you know, as with all these things, there's, there's some rocky moments and things don't always go according to plan. And, uh, you know, maybe he was a, a, an incredible fighter who could have gone on to be more of a legend. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll take that bit of career. There was no one like him. And it annoys me a bit sometimes when you see him walking down Chiswick High Street and people don't know who he is. And it's thinking, oh, how can you not know who this guy is? You know, he was unbelievable. Um, and yeah, and he's still, he's still as funny today, a bit weightier these days, still as funny today and as charismatic as ever. Trust me on that. So what was the feeling going into the into the Barrera fight? Because there's all these other things going on and, and boxing history is littered with examples of fighters who have, have taken their eye off the ball, basically, because of outside distractions. It, it is really one of those sports where, maybe more than other sports, people never seem to learn from the mistakes of other people in the past, ever. And all that matters really in the end is what you do in the gym. Because what you do or you don't do, in the gym, we'll we'll show on on fight night. I mean, by the time he got in with Barrera, did you think he could win that fight still, or did, I did. you think I, I did? I remember writing a whole sort of piece, and I think I predicted a fourth round knockout. Remember, I wasn't commentating at the time; I was a reporter, so in a way, I wasn't as sort of involved in the in the in the, in the night itself, and so I could sort of give a more of what I thought. And and I and I really felt he would knock him out. Um, I thought Barrera was coming up, super bantamweight, you know, Junior Jones had knocked him out. I thought there's no way Naz can can be not be knocked out. And even then, after I'd spent a good few days in the snow up in Big Bear with Marco Antonio Barrera, and I remember a runaway truck, which we all had to sort of get out of the way from. It was, it was icy, it was horrible, it was, you know, it was... And Barrera was absolutely adamant he was going to knock this guy out or, you know, destroy him. And 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 then you went down to the, the the son of Palm Springs. And as I said, you know, we waited for a couple of days. I remember playing tennis with some of the producers because we were waiting around. Naz was out on the golf course. Oh, you know, he's not training today. Then he was training and he was doing three hours instead of the normal hour. It was all over the place. And still, and despite Matt, I think, um, mentioned it earlier that other sort of documentaries that Tiny Channel 4 did something on him and it was all about him getting his hair done and all that and you know we really should have just realised it more I think but you know I think because he got out of jail so many times and the fight before was against Augie Sanchez and Sanchez you know good fighter solid fighter um, beat Mayweather in one of the Olympic trials and you know, he was, uh, he was a great kid. He could really bang, but he shouldn't have been in Naz's class. And Naz struggled with him a bit. Before that, I think it was Vioni Bungu. Before that was that wrestle with Cesar Soto when he unified the titles, and it wasn't a pretty fight. So I think well, there weren't sort of amazing performances before that. And maybe it was that we, we should have realised. And, of course, Barrera, who had such a great career even after Naz and could adapt. I think, you know, what Naz had was the skill set, and then he relied on the power a bit too much later on. Barrera, smart, used to fight like a Mexican, you know, on the inside and body shots. And then he learned how to box. And on the night he beat Hammond, he, he just learned how to deal with the southpaw. He was fantastic that night. But he had the drama, of course, of not coming out, the gloves, the, the issues there. And, 
and it was a performance. I, I wasn't there actually for that fight. I was back in London and I remember thinking, watching it, thinking, yeah, Nas is going to win this. And then round after round, is you're relying on the power and I'm just like, it's not going to happen here. And Marco tells that great story of, you know, the end of the 11th round when he shoved him into the ring post. I think he, he got deducted a point or he certainly got ticking off by the referee, but he said he didn't mind it. I said, what did you say to him? He said, I said to him, who's your daddy now? Bomb into the ring post. This is a hardened Mexican, you know, Matt knows Marco Antonio well, you know, the, the great fights he had obviously with Eric Morales and beyond, but you know, this was a tough Mexican who wasn't going to take Naz's, uh, his nonsense. And uh, it came down to who was better on the night. Marco Antonio Barrera got it tactically spot on and, you know, Naz was humbled. And I think then when he lost, you know, he took a long time out. He came back for the, um, for the fight with Manuel Calvo. I remember going to Spain to do the build-up with Calvo. It looked more like a, a librarian. He was sat there with glasses. He was meek. He was mild. He was a European champion. Again, you, you got carried away with a Naz hype. He's back. He's this. And I'm thinking, there's no way this guy can live with Naz. And yeah, he won easily over 12 rounds, Naz. But the timing wasn't quite there. He'd struggled a bit with the weight and... I thought, okay. And he said to me, look, I'm going to fight every six, eight weeks. I'm going to get my titles back. And, and he never came back. And it was, it was sad in a way because, you know, we'd all, we all wanted that it to continue and go on and on. You know, you want, don't you? When you're watching a great film, you want it to go on and on. You don't want it to finish. You don't want the story to end, but it did. And it ended, it just sort of drifted away. And a bit like Baron McGuigan, who sort of retired, you know, late twenties and you sort of want them it was over. And I think we, we all struggled to come to terms with that, including Naz himself, who, who got into some trouble and, you know, had to sort of, you know, he had to become a citizen again. He, he was no longer that sort of that, that showman on top of the boxing world. And, 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 you know, as we all know, life moves on and it moves on quickly. And, but the period that he was with us in the ring and around the ring, it was special. It was really special guys. And was, was the fight in New York against Kelly, was that the pinnacle, do you think? I, th I think for me, it yes. was certainly... I, th I don't think it was the pinnacle performance. I thought Jose Badillo was probably the best we ever saw Naz because I think he boxed like an Ingle fighter. I think he boxed with all his attributes. He didn't get involved. He showed all the tricks. He toyed with a very, very good fighter. So I think that was probably the pinnacle in terms of his boxing ability. Although, of course, you can argue he goes on and unifies titles and you know had great wins. But I think the pinnacle of Naz was against Badillo in, ter in, in terms of being in the ring but the excitement and the box office nature and the whole all-round attraction that made Prince Nassim Hamad, not Nassim Hamad, made Prince Nassim Hamad the star, the global star that he became. It had to be December the 19th in Madison Square Garden when he had the fire fest with Kevin Kelly. It just had to be that night. It's a night that we all remember as the pinnacle. We all remember Ricky Hatton for Costas Hugh. And I remember thinking after Costas Hugh, he was the underdog that night. You know, he did it. It was two o'clock in the morning. It was against one of the pound for pound kings, all of that. I remember thinking that next day, will he ever achieve anything quite like that? And of course he did. He went on to achieve great things. But, and you know, no disgrace losing to, to Mayweather and Pacquiao, the two greatest of his generation. But we all remember the Sue night. We all remember the Kevin Kelly night. And we may be with AJ, who knows, with Tyson Fury, we may, that there may be many more beyond. But will we always remember the Klitschko night with AJ? Don't know. It's interesting when you look back, it's easier than now and you're in the middle of a career. But, you know, there are certain moments that you think, 
thank God I was there or thank God I was in the cab on the way back through Coventry? Well, I don't think I'll ever forget being in Madison Square Garden for Rui Joshua won, that's for sure. Not for, not See, that's for it. I mean, another, another one, one of the great upsets ever. But, you know, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's funny how careers go. And maybe we'll get four or five with AJ. I don't know. But with Naz, you've got many, many great nights. Paul Ingle was a great night. Paul Ingle. And you talk about, you know, the fact he didn't want to come out and Kevin was getting so annoyed. Well, Frank Maloney got it all sorted. You know, Ingle was going to go in the ring and he says he was going to wait and the stopwatch started. And if Naz hadn't been, they were going to leave. And they did. They left. So when Naz came, flipped into the ring, there was no one there. Paul was backstage with us lot around the trucks. And it was like, and Frank was going, right, get the stopwatch out. Here we go. We're back in. And I tell you what, he gave him a fight, didn't he, Paul Ingle? Because he wouldn't be overawed by the uh, the, the, the the psychology, by the, the hype and all the rest of it. You know, and, and that's what happened with Steve Collins and Chris Eubank. You know, the, the mind games, the hypnotists and all of that. And I think, you know, those fighters that were prepared to stand up to him, like the Ingles, like the Barreras, and in many ways, like the Kevin Kellys. You know, they were the ones that were the tough, you know, the tough ones to crack. And um, he cracked Kelly and he cracked Ingle, but he couldn't crack Barrera. So just finally, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go around the three of us and just say what we think in terms of, of not where he ranks necessarily compared to other people, but, but how we feel, whether we feel he maximized his potential, because there's a lot of debate around this. Personally, I look at a career like this. When you have a career that burns so bright, I think that realistically, it's not going to last for all that long. And when you have a, a fighter who fights in the way that he did, reflexes and, and speed and, and, and power being such a big part of it, again, it's going to burn really bright. Maybe it's not that sustainable in the long run. So I always prefer to look at what fighters did do rather than what they didn't or might have. And I just think it's spectacular. I just think it's absolutely spectacular. I went to that Manuel Calvo fight. and There wasn't a lot of love in the arena for him that night. I was still surprised when he retired. And I was really disappointed at the time. I just thought, oh, he'll come back. He can't leave it here. This is ridiculous. But the more I look at it, the more I think that was a pretty good decision, wasn't it? Because he will have known if it was still there or not. Presumably it wasn't. The desire wasn't there anymore. And rather than keep coming back and coming back and coming back, like somebody like Tyson did, who had a much longer career, but the, the really productive bit, again, was, was pretty short, he didn't put himself through all of that. He made loads of money um, and he walked away. He did have his problems afterwards, as, as, as you alluded to, but he certainly didn't take any real hammer in the ring, did he? He didn't leave it with, with, with miles on the clock and, and a real kind of faded picture uh, of the person we used to know. So, so in a lot of ways, I think he got it absolutely right. That, that's one way of looking at it. I think that the money was a big factor. I think he made huge, huge, huge money. And I think that, you know, he didn't really need to, to get out of bed. I mean, he didn't, you know, when he trained, he trained incredibly hard and it was brilliant to watch, but he didn't always love it. I mean, he hated running. He just had you know, God-given power. He had natural talent and he had, you know, a phenomenal sort of base in Sheffield and it was an incredible story. Um, I think that I was really disappointed at the time because, and I think possibly still today, because his hero was Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad Ali 
became the greatest because he came back and he, you know, the rumble in the jungle and everything that he did. And yes, the latter parts of his career and went on too long. And Mike Tyson in many ways, you're still seeing now in a ring, but, and, and, you know, and Teddy Atlas once said to me, Mike was like a shooting star gone, brilliant, you know, brilliant and bright, but gone quickly. And yet he sort of stayed around, but you still wanted to watch Tyson. And I sort, sort of thought we were robbed of that with Naz. We put so much into it, into the whole sort of, you know, not just, you know, the, the operational side of building the ring walks and making these nights spectacular for Sky and, you know, and, and, and almost our, our sort of part in helping him become a global star. Yes, he had the talent. Yes, he had the ability in the mouth. And he was a one-off. And he was, as you said, spectacular and special. And there will never be anyone quite like him. But we all played our part in building that. And I think that I, what I was disappointed at is that we never know if he could have come back and beaten Barrera. We never know what he would have, how he would have coped with a Mayweather or a Corrales or, or any of those sort of new guys, the young up-and-coming ones. And, you know, maybe he was right. Maybe he, he he knew that it had gone. Certainly, the the reflexes, certainly the timing wasn't there in that Calvo fight. But I but I was I was sad, and I still am a little sad to this day that we didn't get to see more. But you're right, what he did do, and the the, the time we had with him was so special, so much fun so different, so unpredictable, so dramatic that we've got to thank him for that and thank Brendan and thank everybody around him. That Brat Pack, the, 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 the people he had around him then. You see Clifton Mitchell still. I see still speak to Ryan Rose. Johnny, of course, we see every week. And, you know, they've all had their sort of thoughts about it and some of them are still, still good mates with now, some not so. But you know what? That time was incredible. It was an unbelievable time. And it was a time that we'll, we'll never forget. So, yeah, could he have become even greater? Maybe, maybe not. If he trained better, would, he, would that have maybe taken something away with the fact he gave us knockout thrills on the night coming from behind a bit? I don't know. It, it, it's it's almost impossible to, to tell, you know, what we do know was that he was probably one of, if not the biggest punching featherweight of all times, certainly in the modern era, no question. He was one of the great fighters, definitely, that Britain has ever produced. Was he the greatest? No. Was he the most flamboyant, arguably, with someone like Chris Eubank? Was he the most box office was he the one you wanted to see more than any other fighter because you wanted to know whether he'd win lose entertain get knocked out knock someone out what he'd say 100 percent. no one was quite like nasim matt what are your thoughts on it i was gonna say i think we need to leave it there <laughs> but uh no i mean Naz, i think you know, you live fast, die young. Like I said, you look at that that record, how busy he was there. He was world champion boxing five times a year. And I, I wish those days were still happening. I don't think fighters are boxing regularly enough. And I think it's hurting their development and their momentum and, and everything. But I think in terms of with Naz, when you've got someone that's with a guy, a trainer, especially an, an, an unorthodox style like Brendan Ingle, I think when that relationship comes to an end, they're never going to quite find that same magic with another person because it, it was such an unorthodox way of style. It's a rhythm. It's a, it, you know what I mean? You go with someone different who's more conventional 
and it's just not going to work. You're not going to get the same magic from them. Ricky Hatton, Billy Graham, you know, he was with him from 15, 16, really, even like his last couple of years as an amateur. So Billy was already molding Ricky. They were, they knew what each other were thinking. They didn't even need to speak. You know, Naz had that with Brendan, even more so because Eddie was an eight-year-old kid. So I think when, when a relationship like that breaks down, it's never going to be the same. You, you, they won't find that same magic with somebody else. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll wind it up there. A mission for you, Macklin, getting Naz on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be quite tricky, but, but we should try at some point. You never know. He did, did do a few, um, a few shifts as a, as a pundit, of course, not that long ago. Uh, he's, good. he's still got that same absolute charisma, intelligence. It's like, it's like you're still talking to the same guy in many ways. But um, he's difficult to track down. He, he normally, I'll tell you when you'll, you'll hear from him. The morning of AJ Fury, we'll hear from him. Adam, get me ringside. I need eight tickets. That's when you'll hear from him, right? He likes to be involved. He likes to be remembered. He likes to be, and listen, I, I always will. I'll always have a soft spot for him. I'll always be grateful to, to what he did and how much he pushed Sky Sports in the early days. And um, as I said, it was a phenomenal ride. It was a magical period. And, and you know, so I think there's, it's a bit on us to, to drag him back in every now and again. He still loves the boxing. He still wants to sort of, you know, talk to your Kel Brooks and, and all the guys from Sheffield. And I think he does. He does. And of course, his son's started to fight now as well. So it'll be interesting to see how he does. And uh, yeah, look, the, the, the world's a, a brighter place with Nassim Hammond sort of, you know, knocking around. So um, it'd be good to have and see him a bit more. So um, let's, let's all try and get him uh, on your podcast. And uh, if I can help in that way, I will. Fantastic. We'll hold you that, hold you to that. Um, it just reminded me actually, the last time I saw him uh, kind of uh, in, in person was I was getting my MC's license at the hotel near um, the tower of London that the British boxing board of control used. This would have been four or five years ago, probably. I just finished and out of the lift came Nassim. I think he was he was there to get a manager's license and he just said, where's the British Boxing Board of Control uh, stuff? And I said, oh, it's through that door. I said, there's a little bit of a queue. Um, <laughs> and he just looked at me. He just looked at me like, you know, well, that's this is this is over then. I'm not I'm not I'm not queuing, obviously. So he just got back <laughs> to the lift with me and we went back downstairs. I don't know whether he ever got license or not, but it was just a look on his face when I said there was a queue. It was just, it was just disgust, utter we, disgust. We all, we all queued up for him enough times. I tell you what, we really did. Um, we waited around for him more than uh, I've waited around for anybody. I tell you that much. There was uh, those were the those were the downs, but there were many, many ups. And uh, let's remember the ups, as you say, Andy. Let's remember what he did, which was uh, which was incredible, and uh, he should be he should be um, applauded for all of that phenomenal career. Absolutely. I, I always think that's the way forward. I, th- I think for fighters too, I think a lot of the time they, they call it a day and they, they can't help but think about things that they should have done or might have done or would like to have done. And, you know, forget all of that. Just just just, just remember the things you did do. Um, so we'll leave it there. Adam, thanks very much. We knew you were the man for this job. We knew it. And, and that has been that has been proven uh, wholeheartedly over the course of the last hour or so. So, yeah, it's been great to get you on this. Um, we may well be getting you back for another one of these, you know, because the people just really enjoy getting into the bones of a big fight and just hearing that kind of behind the scenes stuff that not everybody, not everybody sees, which is the real juice of this job, isn't it? That's why we all do it. That's why we all love it so much. So th- thanks. Uh, thanks once again. And thanks for listening, everybody. Um, as I said, visit the YouTube channel. Um, have a look at some of the stuff on there. The, the podcast will be migrating over there, but 
uh, in chunks, really, rather than in full. Uh, and me and Matt will be bringing you our thoughts probably kind of two or three times uh, a week in the kind of 10, 15-minute bite-sized chunks. Um, and for, with regard to this podcast, if you could get onto iTunes and give us a rate and a review, that would be fantastic. And we'll see you again soon. Not that Maggie back in town. I said, Jenny Diver, whoa, Sookie Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Linya and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right babe. Not that Maggie. Back in town Look out, old Mac is back Sports Social Podcast Network